0: You bringing the kids back? Okay, excellent. Well, then, children, please follow the Frank. Oh, dang, I'm sorry. Uh, someone else can have a sermon today. I got to go. <laughs> no, so here we are, week two of Esther. And then you look at the back of those sermon notes and you're probably wondering, what on earth is this going to be about? It's okay because I feel that same way. And I'm the guy delivering it. Yeah, wait, hold on. So, yeah, no, page 451. We talk about preaching, right? We talk about preaching, and preaching ultimately is the glorification of God with the application for our good, right? Okay, God head's nodding. This is good. The energy from the music's still here. We can work with this. <laughs> so, <clears throat> very similarly, as we talk about our commands, if you will. It's to glorify God and enjoy Him, right? So, flip it one more time. What does God do? God works for His glory and ultimately our good. So that's good news. We're all on the same page. (laughs) We're all about glorifying God for our good. And so, as we approach this text today, we talk about God's providence. As always, this is God's working in our lives, his intervention, if you will. But within this intervention and within God working in our lives in this providence for his glory and ultimately our good, we see that sometimes things don't always go as planned. But in the realm of faith, as we've started this year, God is good. He is always good, all the time. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. That's us. That's everyone that's in his family. And so let's pray and let's hope we get through this. (laughs) Dear Heavenly Father, as always, I certainly thank you for all the blessings in our lives, especially those that we fail to see. And Lord Jesus, we have many tangible graces. First of all, foremost is your word. And whatever was written in the former days was written for our instruction that through endurance and through the encouragement of the scriptures, we might have hope. And so Lord Jesus, fill us with hope. Allow us to see your hand at work. Allow us to continue to test ourselves, tune our hearts and our minds, see your spirit, and whatever we need to let go of Lord, please allow us to let go of it in this. So we love you, Lord Jesus. It's in your name we pray and reason we're here. Amen. All right. So before I get into the text, lay a little introduction ground again. I did this last week and I just want to do it again because it's really the, the heart and soul of this entire sermon series, if you will. The 14 weeks that we're going to be in Esther or the 13 weeks that are left that we're in Esther. And so we talked about the background that This book was written, there's a celebration called Purim that uh, is actually being celebrated tomorrow at sunset through uh, sundown on Tuesday. So March 6th to March 7th. Now, here's the thing. It was originally written back in the day and it was here in Persia that it was written and it's through the book of Esther that this even came up in the very first place we don't celebrate it like they do here in the scripture at all anymore. And let's be real. I don't think there's any true Jewish uh, people here. We're all grafted in Gentiles uh, because God is kind (laughs) to us uh, to allow us this opportunity to be a part of his church, his people, his body of believers. So we know that this festival happens, and the whole reason that this festival happens is because it celebrates Israel's survival in God's faithfulness. And if we're ever so honest, I think we could easily celebrate our you know, survival or our uh, salvation very much the same. And as always, God's faithfulness, he remains faithful when we don't remain faithful. His faithfulness won't shake. If he said it, he's going to do it. Might not be the way you expect it to be done, but he's still going to do what he said he's going to do. So, know that that's there. The other part is we talk about providence. And so, this providence is God's activity throughout history in providing for the needs of human beings, especially those that he considers his family. And so, the providence, even though it's hard to see and it's hard to pinpoint, if you will, because you can't necessarily be like, yeah, that's totally God in all of these measures. But it is evidence that God is still at work here on earth, that he has not abandoned us as a planet, let alone especially abandoned us as his people. And so God visits, God touches, God communicates, God controls, God intervenes, and comes before and between man and his So providence, ultimately, is the grounds for faith-building and developing thankfulness and a heart of gratitude within us. Something we don't readily see out in society today. Gratitude, what's that? How can I be grateful for anything in my life? But that is how it is. And so, as I've also... uh, Kind of said during a prayer to Romans chapter 15, we know that whatever was written in the former days was written for our instruction, and this is definitely written in the former days, so that through endurance and through the encouragement of the scriptures, which this book is very encouraging that God is with us and for us and intervening on our behalf, that through the endurance and encouragement of the scriptures, we might have hope. And hope, hope does not put us to shame. You know, faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen, as Hebrew says. And so that hope that we have isn't a wish. It is a confident expectation in the character of God and the person of God that he's going to, again, do what he says he's going to do. So, now that I've established that again, because that is the heart and soul of the entirety of these 14 weeks, right? It's about his providence, his intervention in life, and beholding it. Last week, we were introduced, if you will, to King Ahasuerus, that he's you know got this great war council that he's facilitating on this. And this event being chronicled in history uh, is both from a scriptural standpoint, historical, as well as from studying Persia, historical. This great war council that he had was exactly laid out like this, as interesting as that is. And so this was, though, ultimately for Persia to invade Greece because Xerxes, the king of had an issue because, well, it killed his dad. And so naturally, you know, you want to take over. And, you know, when you have 127 provinces, why not have a few more at this point? Like, when is enough enough? You got 127, eh, would 130 be good? Eh, maybe about 140. Eh, let's keep going to 150, right? Human nature, we're never satisfied in the end. And so, the king was displaying his power and his wealth to entice others to join him for his war campaign. And he was laying out all the stops because, well, we're human beings, and these things are, quote-unquote, the measures of our success, even though that's not the measure of success from a godly perspective, let alone a spiritual perspective. So that brings us to today and the four verses that we have today. You guys ready? All right. All right. Let's do this. So, verse 9. Queen Vashti also gave a feast for the women in the palace that belonged to King Ahasuerus. On the seventh day, when the heart of the king was merry with wine, he commanded Mehuman, Biztha, Harbona, Bigtha, Abagtha, Zethar, and Carcass, the seven eunuchs who served in the presence of King Ahasuerus to bring Queen Vashti before the king with her royal crown in order to show the peoples and the princes her beauty, for she was lovely to look at. But Queen Vashti refused to come at the king's command, delivered by the eunuchs. At this, the king became enraged. And his anger burned within him, It's burning like hemorrhoids. No, <laughs> okay. Oh, man. Did he really just go there? I did. I'm trying to bring a little levity to this. So a lot of a lot of this is always talking about preaching ability to glorify God and still making it applicable for man right and there was a lot of questions. I had a lot of questions too in regards to all of this, but something really important, especially as I was studying this, and I think it's important for us is the ridiculousness of our assumptions that we may or may not have that we include into a text as we read it. One of the unfortunate shortcomings that we all have, we all have it, is that we put ourselves into the story. And we put our current culture into the story. We put our current trials and challenges into the story. But here's the thing, this story was written 2,000 years ago. What's the culture that's going on at this time? Well, this is actually more than 2,000 years ago. But you know what I'm saying. That what's going on? So a part of hermeneutics, which is the study of how to interpret Scripture properly, is to go back and to understand you know, the culture of the time. But more so, the simplest and easiest question, because most of us aren't going to go into history books and be like, hmm, what was the Persian Empire like? Let's be honest. Most of us don't really care what the Persian Empire was like, because, well, the Persian Empire is not around anymore. So why do I need to know about the Persian Empire at all? And so that's not the point of any of this, too. But the author's original context, the better question to ask is, what is this passage about? What is the author trying to communicate in this? Now, as your pastor, you know that as a preacher, too, I you know, listen to other pastors and preachers that have been around the block longer than I have. And I listen to old-timers as well, because you know, the theology is still the theology throughout all of history, like that doesn't change. The application might always change for us as humans because, well, we're living in this time now. And so I want to start by telling you what this isn't because so many people have made this short little passage into something that it's not. When you look at this, first and foremost, do you think ultimately this is about marriage? Do you think this is about a king and a queen's relationship? Some people do. I heard stories, a sermon, if you will, about how you know the king and queen needed to, you know, whatever. And I'm like, where on earth in these four verses do you get the need that the king and queen A had this amazing happy marriage and everything else? Let alone does it say that they were married, let alone when you know the Persian culture and you know a king. I mean, look at King Solomon. That dude had more wives and harems and everything else. Like, why would this, why would Xerxes be any different in that regard? Like, yes, we talk about, you know, you think about a king and a queen, but there's a multitude and a plurality of queens, if you will. Just like in his harem, there's a plurality of women. And certainly not saying that that's, that's right, but that's the reality of where we're at. And so to understand that, but this has nothing to do with marriage. How about obedience to authority? Like this has been used and abused. And I've heard someone couple it with Ephesians chapter five. Like, yeah, women, this is why you should submit to your husband. Like, holy cow, are you destroying people and crushing them underfoot when you preach something like that? So this is not an obedience to authority. How about women's rights? Oh man, this passage has been hijacked by female pastors to talk about women's rights in this. And yes, I feel your hot staring glances right now. It's nothing wrong, I totally understand that. But think about the author again, think about the past. Do you think the author of Esther had anything, any knowledge of women's rights in the years that we're living in now? The answer is no. Mm-hmm. The author wouldn't care about that. The author had no idea about that. So we're still continuing. How about the effects of alcohol on decision making? Why, right? Right? This could be a great one. The king's heart was merry. Who's Mary? Oh, wait, no. <laughs> so it's not about that either. We could totally do that, but why? What's, what's the benefit? What's the perk? How is that God glorifying if I give you a bunch of legalism and laws and rules to do and to talk about? Or maybe, maybe this is actually about eunuchs and their service to a harem. Okay, no, it's, it's not about any of that. But the point that ultimately I'm trying to make here <laughs> is there is a sense of arrogance in our nature to fill in the gaps of a story to suit our own needs. Okay, we've got four verses here, and you've seen that I've broken it up, and I'll just talk to you briefly about each of them. The very first one, a good relationship. Queen Vashti also gave a feast for the women in the palace that belonged to King Ahasuerus. That's awesome. Like, praise the Lord that she had the ability to have a feast. In Persian culture, which none of us ultimately care about, but in those times, let's be real, like the men, the patriarchy had all the power. Women had no power. It's sad, but it's true at the same time. And so in hindsight, and in looking at this, the fact that the queen is able to have a feast for all the maidens that are in the castle of the king, that's great. That shows me that the king isn't a cold-hearted, evil SOB, if you will, and that he actually cares about the people that, you know, serve him. He's not just all out for self like so many other kings or leaders that we see in society throughout the years, let alone today in our world. So I think that's a good thing, and I think that that is a sign of a quote-unquote kind of good relationship back in the day. The king doesn't owe anybody anything in this light, but here he is still you know, kind enough to serve. Now we get to the interesting part, the king's move, or king's pawns, if you will. And it says, on the seventh day, when the heart of the king was merry with wine, he commanded his eunuchs to go get the queen. Why? Because she's pretty. Wanted to show her off. Is that a good thing? Is that a bad thing? I don't know yet. We'll get there. Then we have the queen's gambit, which is her choice. right? Queen Vashti refused to come at the king's command delivered by the eunuchs. And then naturally, which seems like a logical response, the king got a little mad. Like, why aren't you coming? I'm the king. You do what I say. It's the problem with absolute power, if you will, is that if it ever gets challenged in the slightest, they naturally get mad. They naturally flip out. So that's what we know about the story. There's not a lot of details in the story. But even in our own community groups and in our own questioning, we ask a lot of questions. We have, we want to know. We want to know all the details to the answers. And this is part of why I say there's an arrogance in our nature, a high and mightiness to fill in the gaps of a story to suit our needs, which ultimately make it logical for us. Okay? We want to understand it. We want to understand it to the nth degree so that logic rules and that this makes complete sense. The problem with that is it's an antithesis to faith. Faith is <laughs> the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. Like, I've never like, put my arm around Jesus and been like, dude, the man. Like, I want to, but I can't. I haven't. Like, you're awesome. I love you. You're great. What am I left to do? I'm left to trust in it. When I look at the workings of the world all around us, it's amazing. It really is amazing. When you think about the human body, you think about all the plants. Right now, we're in the middle of starting another garden, and here we are starting these little pots and these little seeds. And it's like we just put them in and put a little water, and boom, 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 they grow. And here we are, and it's just amazing. How do they know to grow up all the time? How do they know to grow to the light all the time? How do they know? And like, you know, science which is useful and is not contradictory to faith in the slightest, I view science as the slow revelation of God's creation. It helps us in our understanding. Does it give us all the answers? No, of course not. In fact, nothing gives us all the answers. And there is no way to get all of the answers. Maybe you've seen my little graph before that I'm going to show you again. Here's you, okay? Here's what you know. Here's what you could possibly know. Here's everything there is to know. Okay? You're never going to know everything that there is to know. Much like the kingdom of Persia. Do you really care about the kingdom of Persia back in the day? No, it doesn't exist anymore. But, you know, throughout history, we can certainly learn from it, right? Through the endurance and the encouragement of the scriptures, we might have hope, which ties back into faith. So, here's where I want to, Prove that we all have this terrible problem. Who thinks the king is wrong and why, ultimately? You can see, and don't answer, I'm sorry, these are rhetorical questions. I just want you to think. Think in your head, you know, maybe jump up sometime. No, I'm kidding. So, who thinks the king is wrong and why do they think he's wrong? Have you thought about this and the facts of the story? There's seven days of drinking going on here. And that's after 180 days of showing off all of his goodies. And when you look at that last passage, there is no compulsion. That was the edict of seven days of drinking. No compulsion. Everybody do what you want. Wow. Lawlessness at its best. That's great. And I'm guessing that they took a pretty good advantage of it, right? After seven days of drinking, kind of makes you wonder, too, what happened in those seven days? What's going on here? How come we don't get the whole story of what's going on in the seven days? That leaves me to fill in the gap, right, of what went on in those seven days to try to make more sense of this story. Then, thinking about those seven days, what do you think? Did the queen hear something? Was the king calling, you know, those ladies that were celebrating a feast in their their own way? Was he, was he calling them to entertain him at some point in time for whatever? I don't know. It's an assumption, right? So he was merry with wine at this time. So merry, that seems happy, right? So I don't see that necessarily the king ultimately, you know, what, what was his purpose behind this? If he's merry with wine and he's happy and he's calling for his eunuchs to go get the queen, What's, what's the purpose behind it? How can I answer this question? And, and since we know his influence was alcohol, kind of makes you wonder again, eh, maybe his purpose was a little twisted, right? It says he commanded the eunuchs. Do you see that? That word commanded, well, he's the king. That's what he does. He commands things. He can ask. It's no different than commanding, though. When you're the king, same difference. Was it forceful? Did he forcefully do the eunuchs? Like, I don't know. I don't know, it doesn't say there. Or is it just because he's the king? And then why does he only send seven eunuchs? Wouldn't have 10 have been better? Maybe he only needed two eunuchs. Maybe seven eunuchs intimidated the queen. She's like, no, seven of you guys came, I'm, I'm out. Like if there were two or five, this would have worked okay. But because there are seven, it didn't work. Like maybe if there was 10 or 12, I'd reconsider, but because there's only seven, I'm going to decline. Do you think that might have happened? Something like that? You see the speculations and the stories here. Now, who thinks the queen is wrong and why? Have you ever thought that maybe she misplaced the royal crown and was embarrassed? Did anybody give her that out? Did anybody give her that grace that she's like, uh, oh, he wants me to show up with the crown I just dropped it the other day. The gem fell out. What am I going to do? I better just tell him no. Right? Maybe that worked out. That's a nice way. It's not, she's not at fault. She's not disobedient. She's just trying to protect herself and maybe protect her king at that kind. Now, here's another question, and I saw a lot of sermons go way off the rails on this, Mark. What kind of showing was expected? What kind of dance There's no word dance in here at all. Just that she was pretty to look at. And then, because she's pretty to look at, so many people jumped the gun to the negative, like the pornographic type of response to this. That, oh, well, she didn't want to dance naked before a bunch of guys, this, that, and the other. And the queen actually is, you know, by denying the king, helping to save his face, blah, 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 blah. And I'm like, where did they get this from? Nowhere, when I read this text, do I get that implication. And yet, in the arrogance of the human and our nature to fill in the gaps of a story to suit our needs, people did it. And people did it, like hardcore did it. So I'm like, wow, you guys really went there, and some. Like, that's impressive to me. But how was the women's feasting going in those seven days, too? What was going on on this seventh day that just kind of makes you wonder? And so what happened in those seven days of the ladies feasting too? Why did she ultimately refuse the king? The world will never know. It's not here. There is no answer here. And yet we've just tried to come up with umpteen different answers to a question that is unanswerable. Does that sound familiar in our day-to-day lives? trying to solve questions that there's no possible way that we can. And so, let's take it one more step. Who thinks the eunuchs said something to the queen? Who thinks the eunuchs plotted to embarrass the king and to weaken his authority by going to the queen and being like, hey, you need to refuse the king. You need to refuse him in this because this is going to make him look like a fool. And because this is going to make him look like a fool, this is going to help us overthrow you know, the authority. So it's some plot to take over the throne by having the queen refuse him. I, I just want you all to know that if you bought into that even in the slightest, you're a conspiracy theorist. <laughs> and there are no shortage of silly conspiracy theorists in the world today. In fact, we get to see, unfortunately, several of them on TV regularly if you watch the news. And so, like, that's nuts, but how many people jump to that? There's no facts, there's no anything about the eunuchs other than their names and they were sent by the king, and then they came back without the queen. Oh yeah, let's assume that they have a plot to overthrow the throne. That's nuts. Absolutely nuts. It's kind of like that QAnon thing where people eating and drinking babies. Like what is wrong with you people? Like, I'm sorry. I shouldn't have gone there. We'll stay on the text, but, but it's nuts. It's nuts out there in the world and you know that. So who thinks ultimately that there's probably more information about their relationship needed in order to make an educated decision. Now all of us probably raise our hands on that question, right? Now, Who thinks asking the queen to appear before the king is wrong? Hopefully, nobody, because that just kind of makes sense in a relationship, right? You know, there, there are roles and responsibilities within that. So, the last question here Who thinks we read too much of ourselves and perhaps our emotions into the text sometimes? Guilty. Now, here's the rub. Here's the big part, and especially as we think about this in our day-to-day lives and as we know people that ask, you know, certain questions. Do any of these questions or their subsequent answers that I just asked change the outcome of what happens in these four verses? Doesn't. Doesn't change the outcome in the slightest. It might change how we feel, okay, does not change the outcome. And I guess that's the hard truth, right? Is that might change how we feel sometimes, but it doesn't change the truth that this has happened, that this event in history has happened. There's a ton of variables. There's a ton of little details that are missing from this story, but there's a ton of little details that are in this story too. So now what do we do? Well, let's go back to the original part. What are these four verses about? What is the author communicating to us? And I want to introduce you to the simple truth. There's something in our society, it's not biblical, but it's called Occam's razor. And if you know anything about Occam's razor, it states that the simplest explanation is the right answer. Is typically the right answer. There's no absolutes, but Occam's Razor, you know, invented by William of Occam back in the day, uh, again was a way. He was a theologian too, believe it or not. But as a way of of testing, the easiest answer, the simplest explanation is usually the correct answer. A lot of us play word salads, <laughs> right? Where we're gonna we're gonna puff this up. I mean, look at all those questions. All those questions we just talked about are I think are valid questions. There's a lot that could be gleaned from the information if we knew it. The problem is, we don't know it. We're not the author of the book. We're never going to find out. The author of the book isn't alive anymore. I mean, yes, there's the Holy Spirit that interprets for us, but at the same time, the original author of Esther isn't around. So, you know, the point and the purpose of what they're trying to do. So, these small events... And the consequences that be for their actions are part of a larger series of small events set in motion for God to use to save his people. The dominoes here are very simply falling down in this passage. You saw that I kind of took this out. You see how it's written in scripture. This is very, like, Perfect for explaining all of our little shortcomings in this. The dominoes, they're falling down. It's all orchestrated perfectly. If Vashti doesn't refuse the king, Esther won't become queen. And all the series of events that happen and are there orchestrated after that wouldn't happen. So this, as unexplainable as it is, was necessary to happen in order for God's plan to continue. And again, what happened, happened. How it per se happens? There's a little bit of human in there, a little bit of God in there, put it all together, life moves forward. How God plans. And so, Esther, if she's not able to become queen, then A, B, C, and X, Y, Z doesn't happen. And we know that. And so we think about this and we can translate this as a part of preaching is for our good. It's very similar to our lives. Think about all the crazy twists and turns and maybe the loop-de-loops and the corkscrews that you've gone through as life being that roller coaster of emotional highs and catastrophic lows where you're up on the peak and then you're down in the valley and Life is good, life is bad by your own perception, but you're still here and stronger than you were before those events happened. And that's faith as well. Trusting in God that He's going to carry us through. And, speaking of trusting in God, it is by grace alone through faith alone in Christ alone that we have this opportunity. So, much like this plan that's going on that God is a part of to see orchestrate and to happen, we have God's infallible plan of the gospel and the salvation. Now, if we were just to go to the New Testament and to talk about Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, that would be incredible enough as a plan, wouldn't it? But no, no, God in his details starts in chapter 3 with the plan of redemption where God talks about how the snake and the woman will be at enmity with each other. How he will bruise his heel and then the woman will crush his head or the Savior will crush his head eventually. And then you continue to look throughout history and throughout history and let's call it just redemptive history. In God's little details and his workings with every single person we've been going through exodus my goodness the story of moses and and the the life change that he had in those 80 years and we're left without a lot of years much like jesus our savior we go from in luke where he's about you know 10 to 12 somewhere around there at the temple and then he starts his ministry at 30. And you're just like, well, what about all those other years that he was gone? And Wouldn't it be great to know all those years? Yeah, it probably would be great to know all those years. But guess what? You don't get those details. You just have to know that Jesus is the Messiah and that he's still the fulfillment. Because those 18 years of details, as bad as I want to know them, don't change the fact that Jesus came to save sinners of whom I am the foremost. Right? And so... Regardless of my desire to know and to understand these things, God's infallible plan to bring his son and to redeem and to save a people for his own possession by sending his son in the likeness of flesh to atone for their sins, by leading a perfect sinless life that he may be their perfect Substitute, substitute, atonement. Now let's fast forward about five thousand details, and Jesus now sits at the right hand of God as Lord, as mediator, as Savior, who is our final prophet, our final High Priest, and our King. Boom. Even if I just knew the beginning and the end, all the details in the middle, it's cool because it doesn't change the fact that Jesus did this and that he is our mediator and our savior, our final prophet, our great high priest, and the king of kings and the lord of lords. So God's providence in the details of life that continue without our intervention that we never see or fully understand is evidence that God has not left this planet alone in the vast universe or forgotten for a moment the human situation. What can be known about God is plain to see in the things that have been made. This truth, working in our day-to-day lives, celebrates our salvation and God's faithfulness, which we can be grateful for. Amen? Dear Heavenly Father, certainly. Uh, It's great. I certainly thank you that this went better than I thought this morning. And so without even knowing all the details, I certainly thank you that uh, you continue to meet our needs. You continue to meet us where we're at, and we continue, hopefully, to lead lives for your glory and ultimately for our good. I thank you for your continued intervention and working in our lives. I just ask that you continue to sanctify us by the Spirit, continue to work your truth in our lives, and may we continue to see us for who we really are, that we may be turned and twisted into Christ's likeness, as is your command, as is the plan of salvation, and as is our glory that you've called us to as an inheritance that we didn't earn or deserve ourselves. We thank you, Lord Jesus, and it is a heart of gratitude that we sit and stand and worship and pray and praise you this morning. Amen.